All right. Well, invite the rest of you to go ahead and open your Bible if you have one. We're going to continue our series in Ephesians. We've taken a break away from Ephesians, but now we're going to get back to it. We're going through the whole book. We are now in chapter 5, only two chapters left. We are at the beginning of chapter 5, and we're going to pick up there verses 3 through 6. In your bulletin, if you want to follow along, I made a handout for you there, giving an overview of what we're going to talk about today. The title of the message this morning, based on our text, I came up with, Just Say No. The Mandate to Abstain from evil. Just say no. And if we look at the context here, Matthew 5, just by way of reminder regarding how the book of Ephesians is broken down again, we've said it in a lot of different ways. I want to say it in kind of a new way today. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 talk about what Christ has done for the sinner through salvation. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 talk about what the Christian is supposed to do for Christ. So 1 through 3 is what Christ has done on our behalf, and as a result, because of what Christ has done for us, 4, 5, and 6 emphasizes what God wants us to do for Him. Work out our salvation that we have been given with fear and trembling, and work out our salvation in obedience, really in every area of life. So literally, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're going to see that Paul uh, addresses the Christian on how they should live godly in every area of life. It's comprehensive. Our Christianity affects us at every level of life, in every sphere. And today it's a delicate subject. Um, And let me read it and you'll pick up immediately as to why it is a delicate subject today. I'll try to keep it at the rated PG level. Uh, But let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 verses uh, verses 3 through 6. Paul goes on and he says to the Christian church there at Ephesus, But do not let immorality, or really sexual immorality, or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is a heavy passage. This is a sobering passage. And like I said, it's dealing with a sensitive subject here. And the key word, really, that dictates the context of what Paul's talking about is the first word in the Greek text of chapter 5, verse 3, and the Greek word is porneia, and our English translation is immorality. That is literally the first word, the beginning of verse 3. It's in an emphatic position. In other words, it's what Paul is primarily talking about in all of its forms, all the way from 3 to verse 6, and really even after that. Porneia, or what is translated as immorality, and an English rendering of the word, Greek word porneia is pornography. And actually, the English word pornography is a very good translation of the word porneia in the Greek text and in the New Testament because it's a blanket term. It's a blanket term. Now, one thing I want to say, a lot of what Paul says here is negative. These are prohibitions. These are things we're commanded not to do. 
But before we get to the things he tells us not to do, I want to give us the positive of really what he's talking about and what he's protecting, and that is the blessed gift of marriage that God first gave in Genesis chapter 2. And within marriage, the most intimate element of marriage was sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. And that was the first institution, human institution, that God ever created. After he created Adam and Eve, he brought them together. God married them, made a holy covenant before him, and then God established the holy institution of marriage between one man, one woman, before God, for life. That is the biblical definition of marriage, and it has been for 6,000 years since Adam and Eve got married. And God goes to great lengths in Scripture to protect this most holy and sacred institution called marriage that is under fire today, that was under attack, under siege, under assault in Paul's day 2,000 years ago. But before we get to the context of what Paul is dealing with, listen to, here's my theme verse, my overriding verse for the message today, and that's Hebrews 13, verse 4. I'll read it for you. It's a command. Let marriage, and that's the institution of marriage, as we just defined, be held in honor among everyone. So God expects everyone to honor the institution of marriage. Even if you're not married, you need to honor the institution of marriage as God created it. Then it gets more specific. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. And the Greek word there for marriage bed is coitus. That's the Greek word. That's talking about physical, intimate relations between a husband and a wife. Let it be pure. Let it be sacred. Let it be undefiled. That's what God expects. Because fornicators, and that's people who violate the institution of marriage, and adulterers, God will judge. So God wants us to honor marriage, to think highly of marriage, and even to protect marriage. And that's also the responsibility of the church in our corporate life and also in our individual living. And so now we can go to Ephesians chapter 5, and that's the backdrop for what Paul is telling Christians to do. Keeping in mind, Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus. That was a, uh, Ephesus was a Gentile pagan city. It was not in the Jewish culture. It was in a pagan culture. And these were former pagans, former Gentiles who came to Christ in a city that glorified sexual immorality. They had religious temples designated to sexual immorality. They had what were called religious sexual prostitutes. So sexual immorality was a part of their culture, and it was everywhere, and it was blatant, and it was glorified, and it was magnified, uh, very much like the United States is becoming today. It was everywhere. And it was despicable before the eyes of God because the institution of marriage was denigrated. And so now you've got people coming out of that culture and out of that background, and they're becoming Christians, and they're getting saved, and so now they have a couple things to contend with. Their old habits and lifestyles that don't necessarily always go away right away, do they? Especially if you were involved in that lifestyle. That would be a temptation to keep falling back into it or be compromising because of the pattern of behavior and your indwelling, ongoing sin. And also, they were left in this culture that still glorified sexual immorality wherever you went, in every area of the culture. So they're swimming against the tide, going against the grain with respect to what God expects on sexual purity. So it was a great challenge for these Ephesian Christians. And so let's go ahead and look at these specific commands that Paul gives these Christians, reminding them of honoring marriage and being sexually pure in every area of their life. And I came up with just two main points in these two 
in this passage, the first point I want to make is that Christians, and that's number one, Christians have a responsibility to abstain from evil. And again, the connotation here, Paul's talking about sexual evil, sexual immorality in all of its forms. Okay, Christians have the responsibility to abstain from sexual evil. And the second main point is that Christians have reasons from God to abstain from sexual evil. So we have the responsibility and we have biblical reasons to do it. Let's go ahead and look at the first point, which is verses 3 and 4. And that is our responsibility as Christians to abstain from evil. I got two points under there. Uh, our responsibilities. <clears throat> what are our responsibilities as Christians to abstain from sexual evil? Well, letter A and letter B. Letter A is that as Christians we must abstain from evil in our conduct. In, in other words, in how we live, in our conduct, our actions. And then B, we must abstain from sexual evil in our conversation, how we talk. So it's how we live and how we talk. So let's go ahead and look at, as Paul talks about those things, in verses 3 and 4, he says, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is improper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and no silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So the point A there, we've must abstain from evil in our conduct, in our living, abstaining from sexual immorality. Like I said, first of all, he is talking about sexual immorality because of the word porneia that he uses there. Even one English translation translates it as sexual immorality. Uh, The New American Standard says just immorality. But by the way, the way this term was used, uh, porneia, is used many times in the New Testament, over 20 different times. It's also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament many times. And it's a blanket term. It's a very broad term. It's an encompassing term, uh, translated many different ways depending upon the context. But for the most part, it's just, it refers to sexual immorality. Any kind of sexual activity outside the context of marriage is what it refers to. And it can occur in different ways. It could be sex before marriage. It could be adultery. Many times it's translated that way. Or fornication, which is adultery. Uh, many times it's translated as either homosexuality. It can also refer to incest, uh, and on and on it goes. Uh, Any kind of sexual deviation or perversion is the way the Bible translates it. Now, I also need to say that the Bible talks about sex because the church should be talking about sexuality. Why? Because one of the greatest gifts that God gave to humanity is the gift of sexuality. I mean, when God created the first two human beings, it says he created them male and female. That refers to their sexual orientation of how God created them. It is inherent in who they are. So every human being made in the image of God is a sexual being. So sexuality is something we need to uh, realize, own up to, be honest about, as the church even talk about, address it, confront it, help people understand it properly. Because if the church and your pastor and your family isn't talking about sex to your children, somebody will... Right? They're going to learn it somewhere in the backyard, in the alley, at school, at work, on television, on the internet, and they're not going to get a biblical perspective. It will be perverted and distorted. So, you know what? I am not embarrassed to talk about sexuality today because sex is a gift given by God that is blessed, that is pure in the context of marriage as God designed it. So, we need to understand that and thank God for it. So that's the word immorality, uh, porneia. So Paul is referring to any kind of sexual activity, physical intimacy, 
going on, whether with one person or more than one person, whether between male or female or any gender that is outside the context of holy matrimony. One man, one woman. That's what he's talking about. And he goes on and he says, regarding porneia, sexual immorality, do not let immorality even be named among you. So it's a command here. He's giving Christians a command. By command, I mean it's an imperative. Like I said, the first three chapters of Ephesians is Paul telling us what Christ did for us, and the last three chapters of Ephesians is telling us what we do for Christ. And that's why in the last three chapters you have over 40 imperatives, or 40 imperatives, 40 commands from Paul, from God to us of how we should live, and we should live the right way in the area of sexuality. And so that's what he's giving us here, a command regarding our sexuality. Don't even let, hey church, hey Christian, hey Christian family, hey individual Christian believer, do not let sexual immorality be named among you. The NIV does very good with the Greek here in that it says, don't even let sexual immorality, don't even let a hint of it exist among you. Not even a hint of it. In other words, Paul's trying to communicate you should have zero tolerance as a Christian, zero tolerance as a church for sexual immorality in your individual life, in your family, and in your church. That is the Christian position. Zero tolerance. Well, why is Paul so emphatic here? I mean, everybody's doing it, and it's kind of funny. As a matter of fact, most comedians that are famous, that's all they talk about, right? All their jokes are sexual innuendos. As a matter of fact, if they couldn't refer to sex in their jokes, they wouldn't have a gig. They wouldn't have material. They wouldn't have an act. All the famous comedians, Eddie Murphy, Jay Leno, David Letterman. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. It's all about sex. And it's rude, and it's crude, and we laugh, and people think it's funny, and actually people pay him for it. And Paul says, don't even let a hint of this exist among you. Why does he take such a strong stand? Well, I mean, there's several reasons why. One of the reasons why is because uh, every one of us is a sexual being, and God created us as sexual beings, and as such, especially when you grow up, our sexual desire is one of the strongest desires that we have. Next to eating, sleeping, the sexual desire is one of the strongest drives that there is. And Paul knows that that sexual drive can be enslaving to a person and destroy their life. So we need to protect it uh, to whatever degree that we can. Zero tolerance in the church. To protect ourselves, this is for our good. This is not a puritanical view saying, don't talk about sex, have nothing to do with sex. That's not what he's saying. Again, sex is a good thing, a gift created by God. He's talking about illegitimate kinds of sex. But he's saying, don't even let it be named among you. Don't let a hint of it exist in the church or in your life. And not only immorality, he says also impurity. So he actually uses three words here, uh, all with references or nuances to sexuality. Don't let immorality or porneia or impurity or greed even be named among you. Some translations translate greed as covetousness or coveting. And you may be thinking, well, what does coveting have to do with sexuality or sexual perversion. Well, let me remind you of the 10th commandment. Remember the 10 commandments in Exodus 20? Thou shalt not covet. That's an illegitimate desire of the heart. And listed in Exodus 20, don't covet your neighbor's possessions. And it specifically says, don't covet your neighbor's wife, which is a direct reference to illegitimate sexuality. 
So it's totally appropriate for it to be here. Coveting. So, no immorality, no impurity. Speaking of impurity, by the way, that word, uh, it refers to moral uncleanness or literally dirtiness. Moral dirtiness. Filth. Oh, that was a dirty joke. That's how we say it today, right? So we shouldn't have any dirty jokes or dirty living in our midst. So that's impurity. And then greed is just coveting. And the word literally means having an excess of really anything. And here it's talking about people who are given and prone to an excess of sexual desires and sexual practices. And that just is typical of our world today in our society, isn't it? Sex is everywhere. It's on the billboards. It's on the commercials between the NBA playoffs that I'm trying to watch with my nine-year-old son. We have to be on guard and turn the channel or turn it off quick enough. If, if I am quick enough. So it's everywhere. Just a pure indulgence, this excess of illegitimate sexuality. And the reason uh, illegitimate sex turns into an excess and the need for more and more and more is because when you have illegitimate sexual activity, it can never satisfy. So you need a little bit more and a little bit more and a little more deviant and a little more perverted. And it will never satiate the sinful human desire. And that's how it grows into excess. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Excess, coveting. And it's all back to this illegitimate form of sexual intimacy that God designed to be a pure and gracious gift. So, Christian, he says, don't let your lives have illegitimate immorality among you in your church or filthy living or covetous, indulgent living with respect to physical intimacy at all. All anywhere in the church. And then he gives a reason there, and he says, because uh, it's not fitting for saints. It's not fitting as holy ones. It's not fitting for Christians. And he uses the word there, saints. Saints should not be involved in any kind of immorality, impurity, or greed, or covetousness with respect to sexuality. Saints. And you know who Paul's talking to here? Now, if you have a Catholic background like I do, and you see the word saint, immediately you think of somebody who lived a good Catholic life, they obeyed all the rules, and then they died, and then seven years at least went by, and then uh, the church began to canonize or pursue the process of canonization of that person who had died. That's called the process of canonizing a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. And so I taught, was taught that as I was growing up. So to become a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to have lived a good life like Mother Teresa, and then she dies, and then you wait seven years, and then the church, actually, and then they have to take a vote on whether she deserves to be called a saint or not. Really, that's true. And she has to have one or two miracles that happen after she's dead on behalf of her or her name. And then the church will vote, and then if she's approved, she will be designated as a saint. All that just to say, from that point of view, not every Christian is considered a saint. It's only those who have died and been voted on and approved. In the New Testament, however, every time you see this word saint, it is referring to Christians who are alive in Paul's day. That's what it means. And literally, the word is hagios, which means people who have been set apart by God. All that means is people who have been redeemed by God. It just means people who got saved, people who have been saved, people who have been born again and redeemed. God reached down in love on the sinner, and he saved them and set them apart for holiness, to be holy. It doesn't mean that we are perfectly holy and sinless all the time, because we are not. The Bible is clear. Even though I have been saved by Christ, sin still lives in me. The Apostle Paul, the great apostle that he was, in Romans 7, he said that no good thing lives in me. And then Paul went on to say that sin lives in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. He's talking about himself. 
But then he talked about, but Jesus lives in me too. Praise the Lord. And that's why, and the Holy Spirit lived in him as a Christian. And that's why he was considered to be holy, set apart by God. All that just to say, if you are a Christian this morning and you know Jesus Christ personally and you have been born again and redeemed, guess what? You are a saint. You have already been canonized. You got canonized as a saint the moment you believed in Jesus Christ and in the gospel that very day. And I believe in Christ and I got saved, so I am Saint Clifford the first. Thank you very much. Saint Canyon, Saint Austin, Saint Steve. Saint, seriously, that's the biblical terminology used. And the reason I can be called holy is primarily because I've been saved by a holy God and also because I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. That's what makes me holy. There's nothing in and of myself that makes me holy, but it's the Holy Spirit who makes me holy and has set me apart. And so Paul's making a contrast here. Since, Christian, you are a holy one, the antithesis of holiness is sexual immorality. That's why you should have no sexual immorality, dirty filthiness among you. Because you're a Christian, a holy one, set apart, sanctified by God. You can't live that way. It's inconsistent. That's just logical. So that's what Paul's getting at here. We are holy ones. What a great truth. Every Christian is a saint. So Paul goes on and he says, be holy in your conduct. Then he goes on in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4, how we must abstain from evil in our conversation. So have no sexuality in how you live. And then in verse 4 is have no sexual immorality in how you talk in illegitimate ways. And he says there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. So those three phrases. Filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, three very specific phrases, three rare words, but they have very specific meanings, and they are all in reference to sexual purity, or sexual, actually, the perversion of that, sexual immorality, have nothing to do with this kind of speech, this kind of talk, this kind of conversation. Not only in how you speak it, but also not allowing it to come into your ears or in your conversation. And boy, how hard does that do today when we have the radio and television and cable and satellite and the internet and, and on and on it goes, right? We have so much access and disposal to sexual immorality today. It is very difficult to guard against this. But that's what he's saying the Christian needs to do to be healthy. Guard against sinful, immoral speech. There must be no... Let's just look at these three terms real quick. Filthiness, says the New American Standard. It's a rare word, but it's used in Genesis, and every time it's used, it talks about ugly. Ugly. So there should be no ugly speech coming out of our mouth. And again, it's a sexual connotation. Uh, And then he goes on, there should be no filthy speech. There should also be no silly talk. Silly talk. Uh, The NIV, I think, says foolish talk, because the Greek word is moronic talk. Moronic. Moron. What is that? Moronic, silly, foolish talk. Well, it's Empty talk, flippant, uh, and it's meant to be funny. And the connotation here is this is crude humor. Zero tolerance for it. Wow, you almost have to turn the television off. That's how sitcoms make their living, isn't it? I mean, think about it. All this crude humor and conversation and entertainment that they call entertainment, it's, it's filled with this crude humor, uh, filthiness. Uh, the next word, coarse jesting, what is that? That's sarcastic ridicule. 
Aristotle used this word, and he referred to it uh, when he was talking about crude teenage humor. Yeah, the youth and the crude things they talk about in the locker room. That's what Aristotle used this word for. So you've got crude conversation, crude humor, but it's meant to be funny. And that, that typifies the TV shows that are the best, the best and most popular tele- television shows that are known today. I mean, a, a show like called Sex in the City. I mean, they don't even mess around. They just get right to the point, and that's what it's about. But it's all over. It is rampant. And our conversation shouldn't be tolerant of this indecent, shameful humor. And you know, when it comes to humor, it's easy to laugh, isn't it? Whether you're at work or you see it on the television, or maybe it's one of your favorite television shows or your favorite comedians. And they just got lewd, crude, sexual innuendos sprinkled all throughout to get a laugh. Ha, ha, ha. And like I said, they, they wouldn't be funny if they couldn't refer to sexual immorality. But they're attacking one of the most sacred institutions that God has given to man. And we should have zero tolerance for it. All that just to say, Christian, not only do we need to be redeemed in our actions, we also need to be redeemed in our humor, don't we? Our sense of humor. We need to be pure in our sense of humor, what's really funny. And mocking God and the holy institution of marriage, it is not funny, and it shouldn't be tolerated at all in the church. And like I said, that's going to put you, if you make a serious commitment to that, you are going to be in the minority. And think about all the stuff you're going to have to eliminate from your life. I mean, cable, television, I mean, or at least how difficult it's going to be to manage and screen all of that stuff. Right? As it's so easy and accessible to us today in this culture. And, and for our children who are so video-oriented, that even just multiplies the problem with all these video images that is so dangerous for our souls. Uh, so we've got to be diligent parents, protecting our families, protecting our children, and be diligent, protect yourself. And you know what? You probably won't be successful if you're just trying to protect yourself on your own. Because the sexual drive is so uh, inherent, it's so, so much a part of who a human being is, because we are sexual beings. We need help, accountability to each other to protect ourselves, to stay pure and resist immoral conversation. So let's make a commitment, because God wants us to, to abstain from sexual immorality in our conduct and in our conversation. Now I'll go to the second point, and that's that Christians have reasons to abstain from evil. These are divine, holy reasons. Great motivation as to why we should abstain from sexual immorality in every area of our life. And so I'm just going to read 5 and 6 together. Here's the reason we're to do it as Christians. For this you know with certainty, Christian. By the way, what's interesting in the Greek text here is Paul uses two Greek words for know and puts them together. To be emphatic. In other words, he's just saying, you know what, if you're a Christian, this is basic. If you're a Christian, you know this. I'm not telling you new information. This is Christianity 101. Sexual purity. Moral purity. But we need to be reminded, don't we? We need to be reminded because we live in this culture. Because as we are exposed to it over and over and over and over and over again, there's a tendency to become numb and a little insensitive, right? And to become tolerant and lower our standards. Now, that's the way it was for the Ephesians in Paul's day because sexual immorality was everywhere. So we become desensitized. Somebody was saying it Friday night at the Bible study. By the way, uh, open invitation to come to the Friday night Bible study. We're having a great time in 1 John. Uh, except for this week, we're taking a week off. But somebody was giving a testimony. Somebody was giving a testimony of how after they became a Christian, they just God changed their heart and for whatever reason, they just turned the TV off for about a year. 
They, they just didn't have a desire to watch the shows anymore. And then uh, somebody came to visit their house recently, and they, that person you know, was a guest in their home, so they turned the TV on, and they were just shocked with everything that they saw, the commercials and the TV shows. And these were commercials they had seen before and used to watch. TV shows they used to watch, and they were shocked after a year. And it reminded them of how desensitized they had become to all this blatant sexual immorality that was assaulting them visually all the time on television. And it took them to turn it off for a year to see that. So we need to be shocked, we need to be reminded, we need to be rattled, we need somebody to shake us up and say, hey Christian, where are your standards on sexual purity? That's what Paul's doing here. And he's being emphatic. Christian, this you know with certainty. Wake up, Christian. You're getting swallowed in the culture. Some people can't even distinguish the church and the world anymore because it's crept in so much. Where's the holiness in the Christian, in the church, in the Christian family? That's what Paul's saying. It's emphatic. You know this with certainty, that no immoral, literally sexually immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these sinful things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's heavy. That should frighten us. This is a clarion call for a wake-up Christian to me, to sensitize our conscience. Just a couple of things I want to look at here. Um, Under Christians have reasons to abstain from evil, just two main reasons. The first reason is that evildoers will not receive an inheritance from God, is Paul's first point. And then the second point is, evildoers do receive the wrath of God. It's what they don't receive, what they do receive. Look at the first one. Evil people, immoral people, and he's talking about people who are not Christians, they will not receive an inheritance from God, inheritance of the kingdom of God. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man. So he, again, he's referring to these three specific terms he used in verse 3. And when he says... No immoral man, no uh, impure person, no covetous man. He's referring to the lifestyle of a human being. He's referring to their state of being. So he's talking about two classes of people. He's contrasting Christians, holy ones, saints, with those who aren't Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you're not saved. And if you're not a Christian, you are evil in and of yourself. I was evil before I got saved by God. Characteristically. That was my state of being. I was evil. I was not saved. My sin was not forgiven. I was an enemy of God. I was like that. And then Christ graciously saved me and he changed me and I became a holy one. And before you get saved and before you become a Christian, you are categorically an evil person because of your sinful nature. That's what the Bible says. I know that makes people mad, but I'm just telling you what the Bible says. This is, again, Christianity 101, very basic. So Paul's talking about two categories of people. He is not saying that if you're a Christian and you ever commit a sin of sexual immorality, you're going to hell. It's not what he's saying. He's not talking about Christians who struggle in these areas of sexual immorality or impurity. or with. By the way, do Christians ever struggle with sexual immorality, do you think? Oh, somebody's laughing. Um, yes, Christians struggle with sexual immorality. Yes, the Bible is very clear on that. Do Christians struggle with coveting? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
But the difference is, because I'm a Christian, I have been saved of my sin. Jesus died for me. He paid the penalty for my sin. My sin is forgiven, and I can keep going to Jesus, asking for cleansing, for forgiveness, for freedom from guilt, and help through the Holy Spirit to help me grow in that area. So Paul's not saying that Christians are perfect. He's just categorizing two different kinds of people. Holy ones, saints, forgiven sinners, and then unforgiven sinners because they haven't come to Christ. And they are, he categorizes them as those who are sexually immoral. That is their lifestyle. And another difference is somebody who's not saved and is just totally given to sexual immorality, many times not only do they enjoy it and they don't think it's wrong, they flaunt it. Now, one of the most popular shows on television today is The Girls Next Door, and it is absolute pornography. Absolute pornography, and it is the flaunting of sexual perversion in the most blatant way. So they have absolutely no guilt, no shame about sexual immorality. So that's the big, big difference is a Christian should at least feel guilty or the Holy Spirit convicting them of their sin when they do sin in this area. An unbeliever isn't necessarily going to feel guilt about this kind of sin. An unbeliever many times won't even be able to discern that this is sin. And many times an unbeliever will say, no, that's not sin. We're just animals. Because that's what Hugh Hefner said. We're just a higher level of animal. We're just biological. It's not sinful. There is no such thing as sin. Do whatever you want. So Paul's talking about categories of people. So who he's referring to in verse 5 are unbelievers who are characterized by sexual immorality, filthy sexual perversion and impurity, and those who are given to sexual indulgence in excess. And he's reminding us as Christians, do not commit these sins and don't tolerate these sins because then you are no different than unbelievers. But you are a different Christian, and since you're different, don't live like these people. And as a matter of fact, that's why God is going to pour down his wrath on these people. Do not act like the world. You've been saved from that, so live differently. And he reminds them, by the way, they're going to be deprived of an inheritance from God. And that's the end of verse 5. Christian, don't live like this. Don't live immorally. Because after all, people who live like this are characterized by this, who reject Christ and say sin is okay, they are not going to receive an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What does that mean? They're not going to receive an inheritance. If you're not a Christian, you're not going to get an inheritance from God. An inheritance is something you receive in the future. Many times it's something you receive when someone dies, for the Christian, you receive your inheritance when you die. That's kind of unique, isn't it? And consistently, this word inheritance refers to land or property that you inherit. And sometimes it's translated as your possession. It's a possession of land. It's a possession of a place where you will live. And consistently in the New Testament, this inheritance that the Christian will receive, is going to receive, is the inheritance of heaven. That is our home. That's what he's talking about. So if you're an unbeliever, characterized by these sins, you are not going to receive heaven as your inheritance. In other words, immoral people, covetous people, impure people, they are not going to heaven. But you, Christian, you holy one, that's your inheritance. You have the promise of heaven. That is your home. That's what we hope for and desire for and aspire for, isn't it? Heaven, our home, for all eternity, where we'll be relieved from indwelling sin once and for all and be with God face to face forever. The unbeliever, they don't have that promise. They are deprived of that promise. They will not receive the inheritance of heaven. That's all he's talking about. And by the way, when he says you won't receive an inheritance, he's not, that, is, that is something that every Christian gets. Every Christian will receive the, an inheritance. He's not talking about rewards for obedience. There will be rewards, but that's not what inheritance refers to. This is talking about something that every Christian will receive, the inheritance of heaven. 
our property rights that we will get from God by turning away from these things and turning to Christ. And then let's go ahead and look at verse 6. So that's what they won't receive, and that's the inheritance of heaven. Well, what do sinners receive who don't turn to Christ, who don't confess their sin, who don't believe in the gospel, who reject what God had to offer in the free gift of Christ's death on their behalf? Well, if they willingly, knowingly reject God and His truth and His word and continue on in their sin, and you know what? Many people will continue on in their sin even when they are confronted, even when they are warned. They'll continue on in their sin. That's what Jesus said. John, everybody knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish in hell but will have everlasting life. That's an inheritance from God. So everybody knows John 3.16, but we forget John 3.19, which says that sinners are condemned already and many don't want God's free gift of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus gives the reason. Because they love the darkness. They love their sin. They have a stronger commitment to their own personal sin than they do to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And as a result, they will receive the consequences. That is no inheritance. And also what it says in verse 6 here in Ephesians 5, that's the wrath of God. Paul goes on and he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, of sexual immorality and all kinds of sins like them, the wrath of God comes and is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience just simply refers to people who aren't Christians. It means offspring of unbelief, people who have rejected the basic gospel. We're saved not because we're good. We're saved because we believed, right? We're saved not because of what we did. We believed in what Jesus did for us. That's why we got saved. But these are people who don't want to believe in Jesus. They are sons of disobedience or they, they are sons of unbelief, literally. They reject the gospel. They reject Jesus Christ. And Paul has to start out in verse 6 with an important phrase. Let no one deceive you with empty words. That's very important. He says this also in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, Let no one deceive you. Let no one brainwash you. Who's trying to brainwash you on sexuality? The culture? The government? Schools, maybe? Your culture? People at war? It is all over. We are subjected to brainwashing in a campaign for deception regarding what God approves as pure sexuality. Let no one deceive you. Like the people who are trying to legislate a new definition of the holy institution of marriage that God laid out in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman, together, before God, till death. And people are trying to redefine it. And if you protest or ask a question, say, no, that's not the definition of marriage, then you're what? You're judgmental. You're intolerant. You're narrow-minded. You're unloving. That's why Paul's saying, you know what? Don't let anybody deceive you. Do not cave. Don't cave to the brainwashing. Don't cave to the culture. Don't cave to what they're saying on television. Let no one deceive you with empty words and false definitions about what true, pure sexuality is. Another way that we are deceived is we watch people who live the life of sexual immorality in a flippant, indulgent manner, especially in the Hollywood environment, and it seems like they have great success. They have everything this world to offer. They have great joy. They have great happiness. And that's how they're portrayed on television, in the magazines. Man, if I only had what they had, they have such a fulfilling life. And part of that fulfilling life is an indulgent sexual lifestyle. 
And that's all they portray to us. They don't want to communicate honestly to us what's going on behind the scenes because of their indulgent sexual immorality. And that is that their lives are falling apart or have fallen apart or got destroyed or how many marriages they've been through. And on and on it goes. And the divorces and some of that leaks out in the television. You can see that. But that is also deceptive. This false image and portrayal of how you can actually get away with sin. So Paul's saying, don't be, don't be deceived, Christian. You can't get away with sin. God sees everything we do. What you sow, you will reap, either in this lifetime or in the next lifetime. Nothing gets away from God. So that should also be a warning and an encouragement to the Christian. And also just this exhortation, don't be deceived. It's also an encouragement because we need to be encouraged because, we're, you know, again, we're going against the flow of culture, aren't we? We are in the minority. Sometimes we're of the lone voice. You know, and this week, uh, Jerry Falwell died. Pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church for 50 years. And when you see him on the secular news, he's what? He's mocked, isn't he? He's impugned, he's mocked, he's an idiot, he's intolerant, he's a homophobe. Everything, every denigrating term used to describe Jerry Falwell. When the fact of the matter is, he was a Christian. He loved Jesus. He was saved. And you know what? He's in heaven right now. And maybe he had his foibles and quirks and whatever else and got himself in trouble at times, but he loved Jesus Christ and actually he was a bulldog for the faith. He was. And maybe he had an allegiance to politics more than I think is legitimate for a pastor, but he was a bulldog, stood up for the faith. He was a soldier of the cross. You know, he wasn't afraid of people. He wasn't afraid to stand up for the truth. That man had unbelievable courage. He was just unbaffled. Every time he was on television, interviewed by somebody, CNN, and they just, he just wouldn't get rattled. He just... Stayed focused, standing up for Christ. No one was going to deceive him, and he didn't want his flock to be deceived either. But what we, uh, just be reminded, go on in verse 6. Let no one deceive you, Christian, with empty words, for because, here's the truth, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's one thing they want to deceive us about, is the wrath of God. Right? The world, that it, that's what Satan wants to deceive us about. Satan is the main one who wants to deceive us about the wrath of God by telling us there is no wrath of God. Or that there is no Satan, that there, there is no devil, that there is no hell. That's the greatest deception of all. To believe that there is no consequence for sin known as hell or the wrath of God. Because we just want to hear about a God who is only loving. But the Bible says, no, God is a God of love. He is incarnate, inherent love. But he's also a holy God. He is a God of wrath. He is a consuming fire. God is many things. He is pure. He is gracious. He is good. He, he is... Uh, many attributes, and one of those is he is a God of wrath who cannot tolerate sin and must punish sin and will punish sin, and is punishing sin right now. And I want to close with this. How is God pouring out his wrath right now on sinners here on planet Earth? Because God is pouring out his wrath on America and every other country on planet Earth. Romans 1.18 says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven Present tense. The wrath of God is coming down from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity right now. Of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what it means. God is pouring out his wrath against sinful sexual immorality. And then he gets into the details. Well, how is he doing that? Uh, Well, starting at verse 24, it says, Because of their sin, because of their lack of repentance, because they didn't give thanks to God as the creator, God judged them by, listen carefully, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. God gave them over. God gave, he says it three times. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. That 
is a manifestation of the wrath of God. It's where God, you know what he does? He takes his hands of protection off the sinner. You want to live that way? Fine, live that way. Indulge yourself. And you know what? You're going to kill yourself. That's what this kind of wrath is talking about. There's different kinds of wrath, but this is the most common wrath that's going on today in our culture. Is where God just takes his hands of resistance away. His hands of protection. And lets the sinner indulge themselves. To the point, literally, of physical destruction. It's a scary thing, but it's true. And so again, like I said, this is a sobering passage, but a great reminder that we need to hear, and it is oh so practical in the society and the culture in which we live, isn't it? It is. It's, uh, it's something that every human being has to deal with sexuality and the sexual reality. And unfortunately, historically, it seems like the church is unwilling to talk about it, address it, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, marginalize it. And as a result, people are learning the wrong things in a vacuum, and it leads to sexual perversion and the ruin of many people's lives. So we need to thank God that he's very clear about his word and his will for us. And just to close, if you have ever struggled with any of these things, sexual immorality of any kind, you know what the good news is? It is not the unforgivable sin. Did you know that? The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Did you know that you cannot out the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? You can't. So I don't care what your sexual sin was in your past. It is not a sin that can't be forgiven by God. Jesus Christ, His blood, can cover and forgive that sin. And you know what? If you have a heart and you're sincere in asking Him to forgive you of your sin, He will. He will forgive your sin. He will change you. He will help you. That's the good news. That is the gospel. Any one of these sins, if it's uh, something that has haunted you or it's giving you guilt or shame, just know and be reminded that the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that is because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross, rose again from the dead, and imparts it to all who call upon him with a sincere heart. So with that, let's go ahead and pray, and let's thank him for being a saving God. That's why Jesus came. That's what it says in the Bible. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners.